Romans chapter 8. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, please grab one from under a seat close by in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you after the service. Romans chapter 8. I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I'm on a, on a vacation specifically, like a, like a trip to Israel, and, and by the way, we're planning our next one, probably going to be February time frame 2019, so a little year and a half to roughly to save up your shekels, but um, get, you go on a trip like that, and you get, you get about halfway through the trip, and you get back to your hotel room, and then you start going through your, your pictures of the trip already, and start recounting, and start looking at that, and going back, because it's, it seems like you've been there for a month already, and it's only been a few days, and it's been interesting this week. I've gone back through, and I started reading at the beginning of Romans again, and reading up to where we are a couple of times, kind of going back through those pictures, and uh, it's just been, it's a, been such a wonderful study to look at this amazing letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And if you'll remember back in chapter one, Paul lays it out for us. He says that, you know, the kind of the reason for the letter, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God because in the gospel of God is the power of God unto salvation for anyone who would believe. Anybody believe the power of God because it's the righteousness of God that is revealed in the power of God through the gospel of God. The righteousness of God that is given and extended to us. His righteousness, not ours. His righteousness given to us. And again, by faith, faith to faith, he says. But he says it's because of the fact that the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who have even though he has clearly shown himself since through creation, since the beginning of time, to every man, woman, and child, man as a whole has rejected him, has, has pushed him away. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. And he talks of that, and, and we went through a couple of chapters as he's working through that, and basically underscoring the fact that, that the law can't save us. It's not through obeying now and understanding and obeying the law that we, can, that we can come to this saving relationship with the Lord. It is only by grace that is extended to us that we can be justified, declared righteous before a holy and perfect God. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all desperately want that, that relationship restored. And it is done through grace. It is done by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And as we move through all of that and through the first seven chapters, then we come to chapter eight. And as we begin the, the beginning of chapter eight, Paul recounts that kind of as a summary at the beginning of the chapter because he said, though the law weak as it was, not because the law was weak, but in us, in our flesh, because of us, the law could never do what the law couldn't do, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to live a perfect sinless life, give that life in exchange for us. And he said, because of all of that, we can stand firm on, on the word of God in verse one of chapter eight where it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. No condemnation. Because he goes on to explain too that it, because we have the spirit of God in us, we are children of God. Children, heirs of God. 
with Christ Jesus. And we look forward to that day when we will be glorified with him. And it it comes to that point in in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 8 where it says that the Holy Spirit, because we're children of God, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the perfect will of God for our lives when we don't know how to pray. When we don't even know how to utter the words of a prayer to to our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit in us intercedes perfectly, knowing exactly the perfect will of God, knowing exactly what we need interceding for us. And then verse 28, and we know that God works all things together for good. For those who love God, called according to his purposes, and then this last, our last time together, we looked at the verses following that. Paul unravels this amazing truth that God knew us. He, he, he foreknew us. He chose before the foundation of the world to place his perfect love on us. And because of that, he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That that is a, that is a guarantee for us as believers, that we will be conformed to the image of his son. Because he knew us, he called us, he justified us, and we will be glorified. It is such a done deal. We looked at last time, Paul refers to it in, in the past tense. From God's point of view, it's already done, our glorification, even though we don't personally experience that, that right now. And as we started last week, and this is where we'll kind of jump back into the text in verse 31, it says then, Paul says, what, he starts a series of questions that we're going to look at this morning that, that are, are designed to make you think and come to a logical conclusion with the questions that are asked based on all of this. What do we say to all of this? And his simple answer is, if God is for us, who could be against us? If, if, if the creator of, of the universe, the all-powerful, almighty God is for us, who could possibly come against us? And, and as I mentioned last time, that word if, that's translated if there, is, is in such a way that it, it's not like it leaves it open to possibility. Like, if it happens, no, it, it, is a, it, it, it comes with the certainty that it's already done. It would be better translated to say, since God is for us, who could be against us? Now, is Paul saying that since God is for us, nobody's going to come against us? No. We, we, have, we have constant opposition everywhere we look, all around us, from the world from, from, our, from the spiritual forces of darkness, even from our own flesh. But what Paul is saying, who could possibly take away our no condemnation status as believers? And the logical answer is no one. If almighty, all-powerful God gives this to us, it is a gift given to us. We didn't earn it, given to us. No one can take it away. No one, can, no one can move in and say, oh, you're, you, that no con- you're condemned. Impossible. And he goes on to get back it up with, a, with another question in verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Knowing, again, before the foundation of the world, what it would require in order to purchase us out of sin, death, slavery to those things and give us eternal life, there was only one, there was only one possible solution and that was that Jesus would come, live a perfect sinless life, 
suffer and die in our place, rise again on the third day. That is the only way. And that, that, by the way, Peter tells us that plan was put into effect again before the foundation of the world. He knew all of it ahead of time and went ahead and went through it all for you and for me. And what Paul is saying, if God is, was willing to do all of that, what makes you think that he will not give us everything that we need in order to be Conform to the image of Christ. Those things in our lives that we go through that during the time that we're going through them, we would give anything to get out of, but at the end of it and we look back and we realize the character that was developed in us and how God molded and shaped us more into his image, we'd say, there's no way I'd give it back now. Wouldn't he freely give us those things knowing the end? And wouldn't he freely give us what we know is coming as it's been laid out, co-heirs with Christ? our glorified status ahead. Will he not freely give us those things? Knowing what it cost in him, the fact that he freely gave that to us already. He continues in verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who will bring a charge against us? Again, that does not mean that no charges will be brought. The question is put out there. Who's gonna bring a charge? It's a legal term. Kind of, if you will, let's pretend we're all in a courtroom. Who's going to bring the legal accusation against us? Well, the Bible tells us who will. In Revelation chapter 12, it tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who brings accusations against the brethren, against the elect, if you would, the word used here in verse 33, the children of God. And it tells us in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, not only is he accuser, he's a continual accuser. He says, day and night, he's bringing the accusations against, to, to, to God against us. Day and night. The, the world would like you to believe and paints these, these pictures and puts it all out there that, that, that Satan, the devil, has an office in hell that overlooks and he manages the torment of all of the people there. That is absolutely a total, total false picture. A, Satan, the devil, is not in hell now. And B, when he does go, he's not going to be in charge. He, the, the lake of fire reserved for him and, and, his, and his angels and all and the, in the future. That is, that is what's coming. But right now, the book of Job tells us he's wandering around the earth just as his, as his minions are, the fallen angels are. They are, they're roaming around. He still has, according again to Job chapter one, he still has access to heaven. Praise the Lord. One day that, that access is gonna be revoked and he's gonna be cast again into the lake of fire forever. But right now it tells us that he has access to heaven and he's bringing these accusations before the father. And you know what the thing about those accusations? They are absolutely, totally 100% true. We can't deny that, can we? As a matter of fact, he probably doesn't even know the half of it. He can't read your mind. He can, he, he can, he can only bring those, those outward things. Matter of fact, if we were standing there in the court of law right now, we'd probably be going, oh, thank goodness he didn't bring that up. <laughs> so the accusations are true. And we, we can't put in a plea of, of in, innocence. We can't plead innocence. We're guilty. We can't plead ignorance. We can't even plead insanity. Guilty is charged. 
So are we hopeless in this situation? Here, it's, it, the question is asked, who brings a charge against God's elect? The charges are there. The charges are real. First Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. A mediator, one who comes. A mediator has to fully represent both sides. That's why he has to be the doctrine of the fact that the doctrine that Jesus is fully God and fully man is vitally important to us. He has to represent both sides, fully God and fully man. In order to be our mediator, he had to become one of us. And the Bible is clear that he did, taking on, as we looked at Romans chapter 8 at the beginning, in the likeness of sinful flesh, a ransom given. Well, something given in exchange for another. Romans, or Revelation, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12. Again, it tells us that Satan is the accuser. Verse 11 says this, and they overcame him. So he's the one bringing the accusation. How do we overcome the accusations? They overcame him, notice, by, because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. So the, again, the courtroom drama, if you would, playing it out, the accuser, the, 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 the accusations that are coming, the prosecutor is the devil. The judge is almighty God. And here we see our, our defense counsel, if you would, Paul calls him our advocate, or I'm sorry, John does, our advocate. He comes in and he makes his defense for us. And it's laid out here, exhibit, that First John chapter two, it tells us, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. He is the one who comes alongside of us, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but those of the whole world. Our advocate, the one who comes alongside us, our defense counsel, and here he brings in our defense, the evidence, if you would, exhibit A, the atonement. He took our, pay, our place. The penalty has been paid by him, propitiation, that, that the requirements have been satisfied. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So enter exhibit B, the blood of Jesus. We overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. First John chapter one, verse seven says, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Every sin, every accusation, even again, the ones that, that our accuser doesn't know about, but the almighty holy judge knows. All of those covered by the blood of Jesus poured out for us. And by the way, it tells us here, we see it clearly in 1 John 2, 2. We just read it. Not only our sins, but for those, the sins of the whole world. There's, there is a teaching out there that says that the, the blood of Jesus has limited atonement. That, 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 that's not true. We just looked at it, the entire world. The, the blood of Jesus shed for all. However, even though it is unlimited in its reach, it has to have individual application. That is why only exhibit A and B won't get it. Exhibit C and D are also needed. Exhibit C, confession of sin. Exhibit D, declaration of the lordship of Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. You have to take those first, exhibit A and exhibit B, the atonement, the blood of Jesus. And it has to be applied to your account, personally and individually. But for everyone who does, as Paul lays it out here, the children of God, the, 
the brethren, the elect that are talked about here, when that happens, again, the verdict comes down justified, righteous. We are declared righteous. All the charges against us are fully dropped because the penalty was fully paid. Jesus, when he hung on the cross, his fight, he fight, cried out, he said, it is finished, paid in full. The word of our testimony, the confession of our sin, the declaration of the lordship of Jesus in our life. We overcome, declared righteous because of his blood and our, and our confession. A confession, by the way, that when we take that testimony out into the world is irrefutable evidence. That your, your neighbors, your family members, and, and as we approach this holiday season that is coming up, no doubt we're going to get together and spend time with those who, who aren't Christians, who perhaps look at you as, as weird because of the, you know, this, this faith that you have. And they can argue with you all day long over football games and all this kind of stuff about creation versus evolution and Jonah and all of these things and think you're totally crazy for believing the word of God, but they cannot argue with what God has done in your life life. That is irrefutable evidence. You were, a, you were something different before you were born again. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. They can't argue with that. The word of our testimony. But I want to focus in as I believe Paul is focusing in on these final verses in Romans chapter 8 about the word of our testimony, not to the outside world, but to ourselves. Because we can so easily buy into the lie of the enemy that continually causes us to doubt and to question, are we truly in the love of God? Are, am I truly a child of God? Because he's going to continue to bring those accusations directly to you. You can't be a Christian and think that. You can't this. No way. God's love can't cover that. And continually and cause those doubts and to continue to roll those things over and over. Guys, I bring us back to verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no one can revoke that status from you if you are a born-again believer. No one. I like the way Martin Luther put it, loosely paraphrasing. He said, whenever the devil comes knocking on my door to bring an accusation to me, I just say, hey, Jesus, would you get that? Who will bring a charge against God, God's elected is God who justifies. The accusations can come, but they're totally ineffective because the creator of the universe, the holy righteous judge, has declared you righteous. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. The only one who can condemn us. All the devil can do is accuse. He has no power to condemn. The only one who can condemn is the one who gave his own life for you. And that's Paul's point here. Again, he went through all of it for you. Who is the one who condemns? The Lord Jesus died for you. He paid your penalty. The deposit was made. But in addition to that, he was raised again. And guys, that is such a vital, of vital importance. Because if Jesus died but did not rise again, he would be just like any other man. 
The Bible is very clear. If there is no resurrection, we are still in our sins. The deposit made on the cross, deposit accepted three days later when he came out of the tomb. Do you ever, have you ever done that now? I think this is so cool. You don't have to go to the bank anymore to make a deposit. You get a check. You take a picture of the front, picture of the back. You hit send. Boom. That's awesome. But if you go right away to your account and you pull it up and you see it, see it up there, what's the word that's sitting right next to it? Pending. You can't spend that money yet. It's not pending anymore because the tomb is empty. The power of sin, the power of death, broken forever for us as born-again believers. He's, he's not in the tomb anymore. He's at the right hand of God now. He is sitting on his throne. It, it's this picture, again, of the temple. We look at, at the tabernacle when it was built in the wilderness and the temple in Jerusalem. And you notice what piece of furniture is missing from the temple is anything to sit on. Why? There's no chairs in the temple. Why not? Because the work of the priest is never done. Purposely, there are no chairs because their, their work is never done. Hebrews chapter 10 says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Perfected for all time. He has sat down, the work is done, it is finished, it is accepted. And it tells us that while he is there, seated at the right hand of the Father, he is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit, we talked about that again before in verses 26 and 27. The Holy Spirit interceding for us. Our Savior, our King, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as well. Hebrews 7, 25. Therefore, he is also able, note, to save forever those who draw near to God through him. And note this word, since. He always lives to make intercession for them, interceding for us, praying for us. Luke records for us that on the, the night that our Lord was betrayed, he was talking to his disciples. And he was telling them what was going to happen, that they were all going to abandon him. They were all going to leave. And Peter God bless him, stood up and he said, I'll never, I will never forsake you. I'll never leave you. I'll die with you, Jesus. And Jesus said, oh, Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And I know what we'd all like Jesus to pray if that was a demand made of us, right? Hey, Brett, Satan's demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. You prayed, and you prayed that it wouldn't happen, right? <laughs> you prayed that, that, that he would be totally stopped in his efforts, right? No, that's not what he prayed. He said, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Did Peter's faith fail? What happened a couple hours later? He denied him three times. Did his faith fail? No. Failure means that it comes to an end. His faith didn't fail. It may have faltered. 
It may have flickered, but it didn't fail. Why? Because Almighty God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, was praying for him, was interceding for him, the same as he does for you and me. Would you turn with me to Psalm 73? Keep your finger here. We'll be back momentarily. Psalm 73. I love Psalm 73 because it's just so, it's just so raw. It's just so real. It's just so, we have this, this man, Asaph, either he was the author or he was the one who put it to music. We, there's some debate about that regardless. Whoever the, whoever the author is, is just pouring his heart out and just being totally real. And I appreciate that because we all go through life real, Right? I mean, it's, we, it's, we, we don't live in some kind of fantasy thing. It's real life that we go through. And here he, we see his struggles, what he's going through. Verse one, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Verse two, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw their pros- the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Do you ever feel that way? When you look around and you see the world and this Christ-rejecting world, and and you, you see all of this going on, and it looks like all of those that just don't have a care in the world about following God, it looks like their life is just perfect, like they don't have any problems, like like everything is just just awesome. Not true, but we can feel that way sometimes, right? If we're honest as he's being honest. I mean, this isn't true. There are no pains in their death. They they don't have trouble as other men. That's not true, but it appears that way. And he was just being honest that he's going through that. And if we skip ahead to verse 13, he says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands of innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Ever feel like that? I'm looking around and, and I'm trying to do the right thing and I'm working hard and at work, every, I, they know I'm a Christian and I, I'm following the rules and I'm not, I'm not cheating anyone and I'm not doing anything. And I look around and all of those that are, seems like they're getting everything. They're the ones getting the promotions and the big paychecks and all of this other kind of stuff. And that, all that's happening to me is just, just heartache and pain and I'm chasing every morning. Again, not true, but it can feel that way, Right? He continues in verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I ponder to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Verse 17, underline this, circle it, asterisk by it, until I came into the sanctuary of God. Until I brought all of this to the throne room of grace. Until I brought all of my feelings, everything I'm going through to the feet of Jesus. And then I perceived their end. The circumstances initially immediately didn't change, but his perspective did. Verse 21, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, 
I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Because he has taken hold of our right hand, interceding for us, praying for us, never leaving us, never abandoning us. Guys, we can't fall. We can stumble. Psalm 18, 36, if you're a note taker, it says, you enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. Again, he's got a hold of our hand. We, we stumble a little bit. What happens? Well, we might get hung around like this a little bit, but he's got a hold of us. With your counsel, you will guide me, verse 24, and afterward receive me to glory. Who am I, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Here we go, verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My flesh is gonna fail, so is yours. Our hearts may fail from time to time, but guys, our faith never will. It may falter, it may flicker, it may get really close to flatlining, but it will never ultimately fail. Behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. Verse 28, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He's interceding for us, guys, that our faith wouldn't fail. No condemnation ever. Verse 35, back in Romans 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Who or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Again, his love for us. The love that was demonstrated that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. What can separate us from that love? And Paul then goes into a list here. Tribulation, those things that the the word literally means to squeeze, to place under tremendous pressure. Outwardly, trials and difficulties. Inwardly, stresses. Distress, that's a compound word in in the Greek. It means to basically to be jammed into a very narrow space. Feel like you're completely hemmed in, backed into a corner where you realize the only hope that I have right now is through through trusting the Lord and praying for endurance to get through it. Persecution, that's the affliction that we suffer because we're followers of Jesus. Famine, nakedness, peril, being totally destitute, vulnerable, unprotected, totally exposed. Even, he says, the sword, even, even if it means dying. And by the way, Paul wasn't just throwing out some hypothetical situations. Paul experienced every one of these multiple times. He's speaking from experience. Hey, guys, lived it, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, never got separated from his love. Ever, not once. He was even drug out of Lystra, remember? They stoned him. I believe they, they stoned him and he died and G, the Lord brought him back to life. We don't know either that or they, they thought he was dead. They drug him out, threw him out there. God revives him. He just, he goes right back into town. Been there. And he said, nothing, nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. 
It's interesting, this verse that's here in verse 36, just as it is written, quotes from the Psalms again, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Wonder, boy, I'd sure like if that verse wasn't there. It'd be nice if we just said nothing can separate us. But bottom line is, guys, we shouldn't be surprised at what we face. Peter, remember, he told us, he said, don't be surprised by the fiery ordeal that comes upon you for your testing as though some strange things were happening. But to the degree you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I don't know about you, but I like to be told what to expect. When I had my, I, many years ago now, I blew up my Achilles tendon and I had to have the surgery to completely repair it. And the doctor was straight up with me. He says, when you come out of this surgery and the, and the pain medication wears off, it's, you're going to be in a tremendous amount of pain. And the rehab, it's going to hurt a lot, but stick with it. I'm so glad he didn't tell me, you know what, when you wake up, you're not going to feel a thing. It's going to be just great because a couple hours later, I'd be going, what is wrong? This hurts really, really bad. But the fact that he told me that that's what I should expect, it's like, don't worry, this is normal. Don't worry when you face these things, when you're going through trials, when you're going through difficulties, don't worry, it's normal. And we know God works all of this together for good for those who love God and called according to his purposes. Bottom line, you say, well, I want to avoid that. I want to get out of that. I want to, where else are we going to go? It's like Peter said, where, was he going to, well, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. To add to that, Jesus says in John 16, these things I have spoken to you, telling them all, all about the difficulties and trials, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have, not might, not maybe, you have, definitely, absolutely, don't worry, it's normal, you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. I, I love the fact that, that it, this is in here, verse 36, but I love even more the first word of verse 37, but. <laughs> For your sake we're being put to death all day long, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but. He tells us in John 16, take courage, I have overcome the world. Guys, since he has overcome the world, we overwhelmingly conquer in the world through him. When you look at that in the Greek, it's really cool. Jesus said, I have overcome, that word overcome is nikau in the Greek, N-I-K-A-O, nikau. The word that is used in our text in verse 37, but in these things, we overwhelmingly conquer, that is one, work in the, one word in the Greek, and it's hooper nikau. Because Jesus conquered, we overwhelmingly conquer in him. That's awesome. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, I send you out as sheep among wolves. And I don't know about you, but when I think about that, something just doesn't add up. <laughs> Hang on a second. You're the good shepherd, right? Aren't sheep supposed to avoid wolves? Aren't shepherds supposed to keep their sheep from wolves? He says, I send you out among them. But he's not sending us to the slaughter. Note again, look at this in verse, in verse 36. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but 
we're considered as, but we're not. He doesn't send us to the slaughter. He sends us to the battlefield. And guess what, guys? This overwhelmingly conquer. Conquerors leave the battlefield victorious. More than conquerors enter the battlefield victorious. Because he left the grave victorious, we enter every single battle in our lives already in victory. It's already ours. The Lamb of God is also the Lion of Judah. The, the, the suffering servant is also the conquering king. And that's who we serve. I don't know about you guys. I, I, I get a little excited about that. Can it get any better? Yes. You walked right into that. I, uh, the other day, our ce- when our ceiling fan in our bedroom started making this crazy loud noise, and then I smelled smoke, so I shut it off. And I was telling that to a, to a, uh, Mike, and he said, you know what, contact the company, because most of them have the, like these lifetime warranties, and yada, yada. So I did, and we're going back and forth, and sure enough, they have the warranty, and yada, yada, yada. And they said, before we can send it to you, though, we need a copy of the original receipt. All right, um, let me see what I can do about that. And so I start going through and, and everything, and because it was for the house, and right when we bought the house, I was pretty sure I kept the receipt. So I'm going through and going through, oh, please let me find it, and I found it. Wouldn't it be great if you didn't have to worry about losing the receipt? The only thing better than knowing that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus, knowing that, that we enter the battlefield victorious, knowing all of that is, guys, knowing we can never lose it. If it was something that we could lose somewhere along the way, I mean, if somebody handed you this gold coin and said, you know what, if you can give this back to me in a year, you know, you could have, you know, a million dollars. How stressful would that year be? We have time really fast. Turn with me to 1 John 5. I want you to see this in your own Bible. 1 John chapter 5. While you're turning there, verse 1, he starts out, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born, uh, who is the Christ is born of God. Literally, that means whoever is believing that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. It's something that has, been, has taken place. Continual faith is a result of, of being born again. It is not the cause of it. So many people believe that, okay, you gotta, you gotta keep believing in order to be born again. No. <laughs> You're born again and you keep believing. You gotta, you gotta get the order correct. You can't, you can't believe without being born again. And so that's what he's talking about. And there's gonna be birthmarks. If you are a born again believer, there's gonna be birthmarks in your life. And he talks about that in these, in these next verses following chapter one. You're gonna love God. You're gonna love God's people. You're gonna love what God loves. You're gonna hate what God hates. But I want, what I wanna get to is verse 11. Come down to verse 11 with me. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. Has given. So when do we get it? When we're born again. It's not saying will give, right? Has given. So he's speaking to us as born again believers. Has given, notice, 
eternal life. How long is eternal life? Okay, forever. If it's something that we lost, it's like that lifetime warranty, but you have to do this and this and this. No, there's no, there's no fine print in eternal life. And this, is the, this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. And that is so important. Again, truly born again. Verse 13, and here's where I want to get to. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I talk to people so often, Christians, and get into a discussion with them and going on and, and they get to that point and say, so you know that you're going to heaven when you die. I, I hope so. No! You can know you have eternal life not not contingency life not not a 10 year life guys paul believed in the security of the believer and that's what i want to underscore with you today you can be secure in your faith to deny it is to deny the sufficiency of what it costs to give it to you. Paul believed it. Verse 38, back in, back in Romans 8, verse 38, for I am convinced, convinced, absolutely, without a doubt, because of the promises of God, because of the testimony of others, and because of his own personal experience, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. I mean, this is a pretty exhaustive list. Neither death, by the way, that's, that's the great part about eternal life is it totally changes our, our perspective, our relationship with death. It, when we, Jesus said, if you believe in me, in me, you'll never die. When we stop taking our, we take our last breath here, when our, our body physically dies, guess what? We get promoted. We take our first breath in his presence. Our relationship with death totally changed. Life, we already talked about that in 35, all of the things that we deal with in our life. Angels, principalities, they're very real, but greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Things present, okay, got that. Things to come, what about that? I don't know what tomorrow holds. Well, I know who holds tomorrow, and he promised that everything is gonna be all right. It never, he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That we can count on. Powers, any type of authority structure, height or depth. No matter where we go, he's always there. He's right there with us. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. And then I, I, I love this. It's like he's going on in this list, this list, this list. He goes, I could keep on going, so I'll just kind of cut it off right here. Any other created thing, just in case you think I missed something, I'm going to throw that in there. Because what was around before creation? Nothing. Okay? So even time was created. Any other created thing. Okay? So nothing, nothing can separate me from 
from the love of God. Nothing can separate me at all except me. I can't lose it, but I can, I can walk away from it. That's what I hear all the time. No, you can't, you created thing. <laughs> if you are a true born-again believer, John discusses that in 1 John. He says, what about those that went out from us? He says, well, they went out from us, and it proves they were never of us. They were never born again. Jesus said, when they, the, the people come to him, and they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Not I once knew you and you walked away. I never knew you. Guys, bottom line is nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It was decreed in eternity past and it is secured for eternity future in Christ Jesus. Amen. One last verse. 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You are more than a conqueror. You enter every day, every battle victorious because the tomb is empty because the price was paid, because you are a child of God, and he holds you in his all-powerful hand. The victory is complete, it is permanent, and it cannot be taken away. Now, we're having communion this morning. I can't think of a better, <laughs> a better thing to do after that, and we come away with that assurance, but I want to right now, real quickly, as we do, I want to speak to any of you right now who who are not born again, who have not made Jesus Lord of your life. And you know I'm speaking to you right now because, because I believe the Lord has opened your heart right now to respond to the gospel. And this is a supernatural thing, and this is a very personal thing. It is between you and your creator. But if that is you, and you, you realize that, that you've, never, you've never taken that step, and again, I, the only reason I know you know I'm talking to you is because the Holy Spirit is doing a work on your heart right now. But you can have that assurance today. You can know that your sins are forgiven. You can know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven and, and have eternal life. Because God so loved you that he gave his only son. And his word says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I want to ask if there's anybody here today that says, that's me. But I want to know. The Lord's opening your heart to respond to the gospel again. The, 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 the propitiation, the atonement, the blood has been shed for you, but you have to receive it. You have to apply it to your account. If that's you here today, it's a matter, again, of going before God and allowing him to do that work in your heart. And you're in a room full right now, a room full of believers, a room full of people who love Jesus, a room full of people who have been in your situation right where you are now that made a decision to follow Jesus. We love you. And if that is you, I want to ask you if you would, if you would stand so that we can pray together. Is there anyone today that the Lord is moving on your heart? And you're saying, I, I know today is the day. I've heard it before. 
today is the day. Anyone at all that says, I want to make Jesus Lord of my life today. I know what you're thinking <laughs> because I've been there. What are, they, what are the people going to say around me? What are, what's going to happen? What's, what? Don't listen to that. That's the voice of the enemy that's trying to keep you right where you are. I can tell you what's going to happen. We're going to cheer like crazy because we've all been there. Anybody at all says today, I want to, I want to follow Jesus. All right. Well, would all of you stand and let's pray. And by the way, standing doesn't save you. Praying a prayer doesn't save you. If you're wrestling with this and, by, and still dealing with it, you can go before the Lord right now and just pray that he would, he, would, he would forgive your sin. You need to confess that before him. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I do pray right now that if there is anyone here today wrestling with that, going through that right now in their hearts, Lord, that you would take the seed of the gospel and plant it deep in that soil, that you would have your way. And Lord, I thank you that this room is, is full of those who have embraced you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, because we look at, we, we, we're overwhelmed by who you are and what you did for us. And Lord, we stand in that victory today that our sin is forgiven, that we are more than conquerors because of what you did for us, Lord. We celebrate that this morning as we celebrate communion together. Have your way in us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.